Almighty God is in the business of directing His people. If you are in need of a word from God, if you are in need of an answer, if you are in need of direction in life, God is in the business of giving each of these. And we learn that from Daniel chapter 2. I'm glad for that because I've had to make some decisions in my life. I recall the very first time I had to make a large decision in God's will. I was holding a piece of paper in front of me that had a list of scholarship offers from three Baptist universities in Texas. And it was interesting. There were two of the universities that are offering significantly more than the third university that I eventually chose. And my mother and my grandmother had been graduates of the previous two schools. I learned later that my aunt went to the one I eventually chose, but I remember looking at that and choosing the school that was offering less in scholarship money to go because God was directing my heart. And as soon as I decided to go there, I felt an enormous peace. And for the four years I matriculated at that school, God's hand was on me and he got me through. Now, I didn't realize at the time I didn't realize till many years later that the reason the scholarship offer was less is that the other two schools' tuition was two, three, and four times higher than where I actually went. And so as a percentage, I ended up getting a lot more in scholarship money from that particular school. I, I recall thinking through and praying through what God wanted me to do with my life, and He directed me. And ever since then, there have been small prayer groups in the churches I've served that have prayed me through and even today, still lift me up before God that He'd make me strong and faithful in His direction for my life. I remember God directed me in who to marry, and about the same time was laying that on her heart. And our attitude about each other, well, someone's got to do it. So we, uh, we married one another. Every church we've served, God's directed us where to go. And it's been a remarkable thing. Every time God has moved us from one place to another, we were living in a place where the needs of our kids could not be met, and God moved us to a place where they could. He has been faithful and good, and I want to assure you, God is not a God who plays hide-and-seek with His direction. He is a God of light, He is a shepherd, He is a father, and He faithfully directs His people in the way they should go. And he always guides them rightly. And Daniel discovered that in Daniel chapter 2, along with the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream one evening in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, that troubled him and stole his sleep from him. So he called in his magicians, his conjurers, his wise men, charlatans, each and every one of them, and asked them to interpret the dream, but before they could interpret the dream, they had to tell him the dream. He wasn't going to tell it to them. Now, let me make very, very clear to you. If God has got to give you a dream to communicate with you, that is not a mark of spirituality. If that's what God has got to do, that's actually a very subtle criticism of your walk with Him. He's got to go so far as to give you a dream because listening to the Word or His people or to the Spirit is not enough. And He makes it very clear in numbers. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But dreams are not a mark of spirituality. They are a criticism of someone's spiritual walk. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar gets here. 
in this text. And so he calls his counselors in to tell him his dream because he's not going to rehearse it from, for them. And they can't do it, obviously, and so he determines, I'm going to kill all the wise men in my empire. Daniel learns of this. He's one of the first on the list to die, and he convinces the executioner to give him some time. And he calls his friends together, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he asks them to pray and ask for compassion from the God of heaven. And they do so, and Daniel gets a word from God. And the executioner, Arioch, takes him to King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel rehearses the dream to him that he had the night before and gives him the interpretation which deals with world events in that era and in prophecy. And Nebuchadnezzar declares that Daniel's God is the God of gods and Lord of lords and the revealer of dreams and mysteries. And he elevates Daniel and elevates his three friends in to his inner circle of counselors. And the theological summary of this entire event is found in Daniel chapter 2, verse number 20. It is surrounded and it includes 25 verbs that indicate God reveals His Word and His will to those who seek Him. Words such as show, reveal, declare, and make known. But in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, after God reveals to him Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its meaning, he cries out, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. When Nebuchadnezzar had a dream he could not understand, Daniel assured him that the Most High God explains such things. And if you and I will walk obediently with God, he will give us his knowledge. In other words... If we will cherish obedience, we can have the knowledge of God. And that leads me to the two major lessons from the text. And the first is this. God conceals knowledge from some. There are simply some people God will not speak to. And I want you to look in just a moment with me at Proverbs chapter 1. This happens in verses 1 through 16 of Daniel chapter 2. Again, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. It causes fear and anxiety. He calls his counselors together, and he's suspicious of them, that they'll simply tell him what he wants to hear. He's actually suspicious of their abilities to really tell dreams and get into the spirit world to recount them. He's very suspicious of them, so he will not share the dream. And then he makes the unreasonable demand, you've got to tell me not only the interpretation of my dream, you've got to tell me my dream in the first place. And they cry out in verse 10, look there with me. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is, there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with men or with flesh. Now, they were wrong on that account, but they were right that no one has insight or the ability 
to access the knowledge of God without divine intervention. Well, it didn't matter to the king. He ordered execution of all the wise men. Daniel intervened. He bought time to pray with his friends, and God came through. It's very clear that Babylon is a place of moral chaos and brutality and fear, and hopelessness abounds in this place. I mean, they spend trillions and trillions of dollars and collect all the wisest minds around the world to give the king guidance and direction, and their problems do not their problems do not go away. Their problems only burgeon and they grow. Does any of this sound familiar? As a nation, since 1960, we've been spending trillions upon trillions of dollars upon growing and burgeoning social problems, and they get no better, they only grow worse. Despite the collective wisdom of the brightest and greatest minds of human history. No problem will ever be solved in any corner of the earth until God is put in the chairman's seat at the head of the table. But men don't want that, and women don't want that. And that's what Babylon was like. Now the question is, why is it then that God conceals knowledge from some? Well, there are, there's at least one neutral reason, and it may be that the timing is not right. In John 16, 12, Jesus told his disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You simply can't bear them now. In other words, they had need to grow some and to develop before Jesus could give them the balance of the New Testament, and they did. And the New Testament is witness to the fact that God gives direction to his people. They simply couldn't bear it. Well, kindergarten kids cannot bear multiplication and division. So in first grade, they learn addition and subtraction. And then it develops from there to uh, multiplication, division, geometry, algebra, and the higher forms of math. Well, in the kindergarten, they cannot bear algebra. Matter of fact, many people struggle to bear algebra. You need to do it. You need to learn it. It helps with critical thinking skills. And you may not think you'll use it in the future, but you, you will use the thinking skills that come from it. But it may be that God may not be directing you because you simply can't bear what he's got to say. Now, I, I, I will be very honest with you. I was not prepared for the sorrow and the stress that came with ministry. And so I'm very glad when I was a senior in high school, God did not tell me everything I was getting into. I am so glad. I didn't know the burden that would come upon my shoulders and the treasure of confidential information that would come my way. I, I was not ready for it. I could not bear it then. But there's a second reason God may not show someone something. Not only it may not be the right time, but the person may not be in the right condition. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man cannot receive the things of God, their foolishness to him, nor can he because they're spiritually discerned. A person that does not have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a natural man and will view the Word of God as foolishness. I mean, the quickest way to tell if someone's saved or lost is, how do they view the Word of God? If they think it's foolishness, there's no way they can be saved. And so these things are spiritually discerned with the work of the Holy Spirit. And so God may not communicate these things because it's a waste of time to do so. That person is a corpse, and they appreciate the knowledge of the Bible as much as a corpse would. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And the third reason is, it may not be that they are of the right disposition. That's why I've asked you to look at Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. And listen to the horrifying mocking that wisdom gives to those who will not listen. I mean, they're not going to obey it. They're not going to follow 
Verse 24, I've called and you refused, wisdom says. I've stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. And then you'll call on me, but I'll not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. In other words, if a person has the attitude, I'm not going to do what God wants me to do if it's different from what I want to do, there's no hope for that person getting a word from God. In order to get a word from God, in order to get direction from God, God says you've got to make a pre-commitment to doing what I say, or heaven is brass and heaven is closed. Now, that leads me to this conclusion. It is not normal to go months and years without a word from God. It is not normal to go months and years without answers to prayer. It is not normal in the Christian life. It is not to be expected in the Christian life that we will not get direction when we need to make decisions. Every person on the earth should be able to get a word from God when they need it. If God is silent, then we might need to consider something needs to change. Now, it may be as neutral that it may not be the right time. And if it's not the right time, you can afford to wait. But if, if it's something else, then there may be a need to change. It may mean that we need to come to Christ as Savior. If year after year and decade after decade, we've not gotten any direction from God and really don't care, it may be that we need to come to Christ as Savior. For the very first time, no matter how religious we are, or it may be our whole posture before God needs to change, that we've already decided what we're going to do. We're not going to do what God wants us to do. We simply want God to confirm what we've already decided to do. And if God's view, God's direction contradicts where I want to go, then we have no hope of getting a word from God. We are on our own if we're disobedient. Manly Beasley put it this way, God's silence means that you have the next move. And that may be that I need to go back someplace in my life where I strayed from God's counsel and go back and repeat it and do what God wants me to do. Or it may mean that I've taken care of that, but my present disposition is I'm not going to do what God wants me to do, and so I need to surrender to it. And I make a pre-commitment to doing what God wants me to do no matter the cost. For some, that means today that you stop trusting your virtue and works and you simply repent and place faith in Jesus Christ in humility with a broken heart, trusting only Jesus as the virtue and the merits to save you. It could be that there's some impurity in your life that you need to set aside and you make that commitment today. It may mean you just need to surrender to God's will, whatever it may be. But if God is silent, it may be that you have the next move. So God conceals knowledge from some. But thank God, in the second place, God reveals knowledge to others. Now, in chapter 2, verses 17 to 49, Daniel asked for time from Arioch, the executioner, and said, give us some time, and he called a prayer meeting. I need to tell you, it's always wise to call a prayer meeting. You never waste your time in a prayer meeting. We have them every Tuesday morning and have scheduled deacon teams and Sunday school classes to come. Our staff will take the fifth Tuesday morning this coming week, and then we'll start our schedule again next, next month. But he called time for prayer, 
And then God revealed to him in verse number 19 the secret of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream. And Daniel praises the Lord in the text that we read, verses 20 through 23. And then he goes into the king without the king even hinting at the content of his dream. Daniel spills it out precisely and in detail. And then he interprets it. This surfaces several types of knowledge that God is willing to give to us when we cherish obedience. It's accessible knowledge. It's accessible knowledge. In verses 17 to 19, we find that it is accessible. In verse 19, then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. You see, back in chapter 2, verse 1, look there with me real quickly. Now, in my translation, the New King James Version, it says, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Well, you really don't begin an English sentence with the word and, but in the Hebrew, it actually is the word and, not now. And translators have changed it from and to now in order to maintain good English style. But it really could read, and probably should read, in chapter 2, verse 1, and in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel interpreted it and explained it. That means chapter 2 is a continuation of chapter 1, where the centerpiece of chapter 1 is verse number 8, where Daniel determined he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. He took a stand on obscure Levitical laws and would not bow to the king of Babylon because it contradicted his bow to the king of heaven. And he took a stand and obeyed God. Watch this. He obeyed God in what he already knew to do. And therefore, God gave him insight in chapter 2. Chapter 2, Daniel's Daniel's insight in chapter 2 is predicated upon his obedience in chapter 1. The reason Daniel got insight in chapter 2 is that he had already obeyed God in chapter 1. And friends, that is precisely what is necessary to access the knowledge of God. God directs the obedient, but to the disobedient, he has not a word except repent. And that's it. The way that we access the knowledge of God is to do what we already know to do. The man or woman that is not filled up what already they already know to do has no hope of getting a word from God. And the only word God has to the disobedient is repent. I mean, that, that, that relates to every area of life, whether it's sexual purity or mental purity or giving or church attendance, whatever it may be, we've got to be fully surrendered to what God wants us to do. He makes it very clear. It's clear today that God wants us to be saved in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gives the command, without stuttering, shyness, or embarrassment, repent and believe the gospel. The person that disregards that command of God has no hope of getting a word from God. But like Daniel, if we will obey what God has already told us to do, we've got hope, just like Daniel did in chapter 2. It's accessible knowledge. Then it's appealing. Oh, it's appealing knowledge. In chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, Daniel makes clear that God shares the secret things that only he knows. That means we get to get in on the very thinking processes and perspective of God. I mean, Paul will go so far in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 16 to say this, and this is remarkable. Now, it does not mean we become omniscient and know everything like God. 
but it does mean for the things of life and the next life we can know. And he says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. We have access to the very thinking of Jesus Christ. And so as we approach dating, engagement, and marriage, we can think about that just like Jesus would. As we think about and approach the discipline of children, we can have the mind of Christ in that. As we approach investments and business opportunities, we can have the mind of Christ in that matter. When it comes to job opportunities or moves, we can have the mind of Christ in that. When it comes to solving relationship difficulties, we can have the mind of Christ. In other words, the kind of God that looks at His people today is a God who is very eager and willing to share His very own thinking about a matter. Everyone can know the knowledge of God when it comes time for the need. It's, a, it's appealing. And then it's gracious knowledge. In verse 24 through 30... What you find is that Daniel saves the skin of these charlatans. Now, there's an awful lot of intrigue in this group, and there's jockeying for position amongst them. And later, this group will set Daniel up for execution in chapter 6 by manipulating the king Darius to throw Daniel in the lion's den. That crowd is right here in chapter 2. And you know what Daniel could have done? Instead of bargaining for time and giving time for all the charlatans to take a break from this execution order, Daniel could have arranged things to where they all got executed, and he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the only four wise men living. But instead, what Daniel did is that he immediately called for time to seek God and get interpretation, and by doing so, he saved the skin of all the charlatans and his enemies in the king's court, who would eventually arrange for him to be thrown into the lion's den. They were willing to ruin him, but Daniel was not willing to ruin them. And so by his actions and by his word, he introduces them to God, his Savior, though they are vicious, vicious enemies. It's gracious. And then it's prophetic knowledge. In verses 31 to 35, God gives Daniel the insight to the dream. And what we find here is that the dream and its interpretation explain the unfolding geopolitical history of the nations from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the empire the Antichrist will build as described in the book of Revelation. Read with me verses 31 through 35. He said, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image... This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold. Now later, Daniel will explain that's the kingdom of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar was ruling. It's fine gold. It would go on for 70 years. And its chest and arms of silver. Well, after Babylon would come the Medo-Persian Empire, and it would be silver, Daniel would explain. It lasts for 200 years. And then its belly and thighs of bronze. Well, after the Medo-Persian Empire, after 200 years, we would have the Greek Empire for 130 years. And its legs are of iron. Well, Greece would be followed by Rome. And that would, uh, Greece would be followed by Rome. And it's rather interesting. Greece is represented by the bronze, Rome by the iron. And historically in the transition from the Greco Empire to the Roman Empire, 
we have a transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age simultaneously at the same time. So Daniel is spot on in all of his history. And then there would be a kingdom where the feet would be iron and clay. And that's where we get the phrase, feet of clay. And it would be destroyed, and that kingdom would be toppled. That's the kingdom, later kingdom, in the end times of the, of the Antichrist. And a stone would be cut out of a mountain, Daniel will say, without human hands, and it would crush that kingdom. Jesus Christ is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, and He is the one that brings to an end and crumbles the kingdom of the Antichrist in Revelation 17 and 18. Now that brings to bear two very, very important points about the coming kingdom of Christ. One is victory. Jesus' kingdom will be ultimately victorious. And there will be no one who can stop or hinder or interfere with the will of Jesus when he implements his end time program. Revelation eleven fifteen will come true. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and forever. But it also says something about prophecy. Biblical prophecy is a detailed announcement about history before it ever begins. Now, I got a lesson in prophecy when I was a senior in high school. I had a friend that wrote me one day, back when we used to use paper and pencil. Do you all know what that is? And she wrote me one day because her mother had gotten up in church one Sunday and prophesied that in a state of 25 million people, that that week somebody would be saved and someone would die. Well, it was very possible in my church where I was as a senior in high school, that someone would come to Christ that week. And if not there, then in Southern California, there were some neat ministries taking place there that are still burgeoning and growing today where someone would come to Christ. All of these ministries within about 60 miles of one another in the Southern California area. So it was likely someone was going to be saved that week, and in a state of 25 million people, somebody was going to shoot someone and they were going to die. Or someone was going to die of natural causes. I mean, so, and, and she was upset and fearful because her mother had prophesied. Ladies and gentlemen, prophecy is not that nebulous or general. Prophecy is detailed, specific, and measurable. If I were to tell you that immediately after church at about 12.15, there will be a sports car, a red sports car, a Mazda Miata, an 86 model that will pull out of our parking lot onto the Atlanta Highway and will be hit by a green dump truck. At 12.15 today, the car driven by a woman, a, the truck driven by a single young man, they'll fall in love with each other, have a house full of kids, four of them, and, um, they, uh, and, and then give you their names, uh, Rebecca and um, Stephen. That is detailed and measurable, and you could stand out there on the Atlanta Highway and watch it all happen at 12.15 or not. You could measure it and tell whether it took place or not. That is the character of biblical prophecy. The Messiah, for example, would be born into the family of Abraham. Well, you could check and see Messiah's claims to see if he's part of the family of Abraham. Uh, he would be born in Bethlehem. Well, which one? There are two of them in ancient Israel. Well, Bethlehem of Judea. And so you could tell. Daniel, we will find, even prophesies the year of his birth. And so you could check the year of his birth and the location. 
He would die between two thieves. Well, you could watch him die and see if he's dying between two thieves. His, his hands would be pierced in his death. And so as he's dying, you could check to see if his hands are pierced. He would be borrow, buried in a borrowed tomb. Well, you could check that, you see. In other words, you could go through and detail, measure, and look for specifics when it comes to biblical prophecy. That is the character of biblical prophecy. And what Daniel has outlined here is a successive history where we can validate this, that the primary empire in Daniel's day for 70 years was Babylon, and then it turned over to the Medes and the Persians, and then it turned over to Greece, and then it turned over to Rome. You could detail and you could measure that. Now, what is outstanding about that is the rise of the kingdom of the Antichrist and the coming of the kingdom of Christ to eliminate it all. We're still waiting for that, but I've got a a whole lot of confidence that the last two parts of that prophecy will take place because the first four already have, along with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other Old Testament prophecies about the Lord Jesus. That is the nature and the character of biblical prophecy. Well, it's also relational knowledge. In verse 46 to 49, look how Nebuchadnezzar uh, responded. Uh, It says, um, actually beginning in verse 48, Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Nebuchadnezzar sometimes was... uh, very rash and foolish, and at other times he demonstrated great wisdom. And here he demonstrated great wisdom by surrounding himself with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In other words, the kind of knowledge that we need from God oftentimes comes through his people, and if Nebuchadnezzar was wise enough to see it, God's people need to see it as well. That's why membership and a fervent, robust, growing fellowship with a local church is so important. And that's why involvement in our Sunday school, small group ministry, is incredibly important because there we surround ourselves with people from God. And so this is the character of the knowledge. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, began to develop significant uh, vocational relationships with Daniel and his friends. Daniel obeyed God and got the word from God, got direction that he needed from God. Nebuchadnezzar was willing to change his direction. Everyone paid a price, and let me make it abundantly clear. You can have all of God that you want as long as you're willing to pay the price. And there's oftentimes a price to pay. Mark chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. Jesus said... Be careful how you hear. Be very cautious in how you hear the Scripture, how you hear Christian counsel, how you hear divine wisdom from God and from the lips of His people. Be careful how you hear. For to him who has this carefulness shall more be given, but to him who does not have Even what he has will be taken away from him. When you approach the Word of God, a devotional time, a sermon, a Sunday school lesson, a Bible study, a Christian book, even Christian radio, with great caution and intense, zealous focus on getting a word from God, God says, 
I'm going to give you more. If you're willing to obey what I'm going to give you, I'll give you more. But if you do not have that, if you're frivolous, if you're careless about it, if you've made up your mind, you're going to bargain and negotiate with God, even what you have will be taken away. Ominous words from Jesus. So obey what you already know to do and then surrender to do what you don't know to do. So God will give it to you. And I I just need to say to you, can I encourage you? If you're not going to do what God wants you to do and you're single, then please don't date. Please do not get engaged. Please do not marry. If you're not going to do what God wants you to do, don't take another job. Don't, Don't move. If you're not going to do what God wants you to do, don't engage in that business venture. Don't make any more decisions because it's likely you will involve other people in those and you may be complaining, well, wait a minute, are you trying to withhold joy from me? Oh, no, I'm trying to keep you from hurting other people. Because when it comes to these issues, there are oftentimes other people involved. The spouses are future spouses and children are future children and in-laws and brothers and sisters and parents. If you're not going to do what God wants you to do, don't make any more decisions. Just wait, because the truth is, the fallout of disobedience will, may hurt other people. A.W. Tozer said this, using the generic he, God tells the man who cares. The Bible was written in tears, and to tears it will yield its best treasures. God has nothing to say to the frivolous man. Nothing at all. Let me ask you this. Do you remember getting a new job? and receiving instruction and training on how to engage in that job. You remember the anxiety and the heightened feeling that you had as you approached this job, and you wanted to listen carefully to instructions so you didn't mess up in this job. So you probably took notes. You asked questions. You weren't certain about what you heard in the orientation, and so you asked others, and then you went to the presenter and asked questions there. In other words, you were terribly eager to get it right, and that is the way to approach every sermon, every Bible study, every devotion, every conversation with a Christian person where it's likely counsel will come up. We need to give the same kind of intense alertness to the Word of God. And when we do, then we've got hope that God will show us and direct us. Friends, He did it through Daniel for Nebuchadnezzar. If you belong to Jesus, He'll do it for you. Psalms 25, verse 8 is something I've counted on many times. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs even sinners in the way. Psalms 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So if you've got a need for an answer, if you've got a need for direction, if you need help from heaven where you need God to direct you with what to do, I want to assure you, you posture and position yourself in an obedient position before God, and God will direct you. Manly Beasley said this, if you're going to live by faith and walk with God, you must establish in your heart that a need is evidence that God has the supply. In other words, if you need direction now, that means God's already prepared to meet that need. If you need guidance now, God already has the supply ready. You wouldn't have the need to make a decision now if God weren't ready to meet that need. God stands ready, and your task then is to get in on what God is doing in your life. 
Your task is, is to shape and mold your heart in such a way that you get what God wants you to do and yield and you surrender. So let me ask you this. What would it mean for you to obey God now? What would it mean to obey God today? Are you doing what God has already revealed in His Word? For some of you, God wants you to repudiate any notion that you're a good person and come to Jesus Christ who's the only hope God has ever given us for salvation, forgiveness, and assurance. 2 Peter 3.9 says He's not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. Or are you seeking purity before God? Do you cherish His holiness and His commands? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. To the disobedient, God closes the heavens. To the obedient, He will open them. And we're going to give you the opportunity today, right now, to decide to be obedient to God. We'll stand in a moment. We'll sing. Staff will be here to help you with your spiritual need. We're going to ask you to come. And some of you need to come and give your heart and life to Christ. You come. Some need to become part of Beach Haven. You come. Some need to repent from sin. You come. Some need to renew their commitment to Jesus Christ. You come. You do whatever it takes to position yourself in a posture of obedience, and get in on what God wants to do with your life and put your heart, your soul, your zeal, your intensity behind getting a word from God by posturing yourself to cherish His obedience. Would you stand with me quickly, please, and let's pray. Holy God, we praise You because You compare the display of Your will and guidance to light. God, you're able and willing to turn the lights on for anyone who cherishes obedience. And confusion about your ways are a problem with us and not you. And so we thank you for your promise of direction. Thank you that you've been very careful and sweet and kind to guide us in every area of life and that because of that, we can be okay in this life and the next. Thank you their certainty and their stability there is joy in the will of God, and I pray friends today would learn that. I ask that during this invitation time now, you will shape us into people who can get in on your word and your will and your direction. Please don't let us leave here today, O oh God, without yielding and surrendering. And I pray your Holy Spirit would move powerfully and reshape us into the kind of people that we need to be. Oh God, there are individuals and there are married couples that need to surrender now. Some need to repent. Their whole families. Oh, they're young adults, middle. There are older adults that have gone years and decades without a word from God. Father, I want to pray that we'll change today. I want to pray that we'll do whatever is necessary by the influence and grace of your Holy Spirit to position ourselves in a way that indicates we cherish obedience to your name and build our faith and trust to do so now. Now again, we're going to sing. If you need help, the staff will be here. You come. I'm going to finish my prayer, and we're going to invite you to come. Father, we bless you again, and I want to pray that in these moments, there won't be anything casual, there won't be anything careless, nothing superficial, nothing insincere said or sung. But, oh God, we would be intensely focused on you to do your will. And as a result, the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart will be acceptable and a pleasure in your sight. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. You come.